Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the second episode of a short series about doctors who left clinical practice to work on digital health innovation. In the previous episode, you could hear Daniel Kraft talk about a new idea for more precise dosing of medications chronic patients with comorbidities have to take daily. He also shared his thoughts about the future of prescribing of digital health solutions. So one of my uh, early uh, projects that I recently launched is a website called digital.health. It's literally their domain, digital.health. And uh, my view and vision for that is to become a a powerful digital health formulary. So if you're a clinician seeing a patient with diabetes and hypertension and smoking and depression, you can find the wearables that might help them manage their uh, atrial fibrillation, but also an app to help them with their smoking cessation or their mindfulness training for to help their depression. So we can start to prescribe tools, apps, solutions, wearables, etc. cetera. Um, those who hopefully can be paid for by different payers when it's appropriate. And then the data can flow back in a meaningful, useful way to the clinical teams um, and to the patients themselves. In the upcoming two episodes, you will hear from a Spanish doctor, Guilherme Serra, who became a serial entrepreneur and, among other things, founded a platform enabling patients to chat with doctors and specialists 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in a secure way, with all the tools and compliance needed for healthcare. You have to imagine Medico as the WhatsApp of healthcare. Uh, it works the same way. So it's like uh, having the WhatsApp, but instead of having friends, you have doctors. These doctors have a, a green ballot uh, on the bottom left of the picture. If they are green, they, they, it means that they, they are available and they have to answer in less than two minutes. And you just have to, need to, to click on them and start talking. And it, you can talk as long as you want. This is one of the most important things. And another thing that also it's very very important to us is that once you talk to a doctor, he's assigned to you. So anytime he's connected, we will prioritize him instead of other doctors with the same specialty. I also spoke with Owain Rice Hughes, a UK surgeon who built a solution to fix inefficiencies in the referral system and make it easier for GPs to access specialist expertise immediately. This can increase satisfaction and efficiency on both sides. So the points you were making and the points that, that some of the specialists were making to us right at the beginning was, why would we give up our time to give this advice? What's in it for us? And actually, what, when we started to think about the problem differently with them and start to think, actually, you know, what, what is causing you problems in your day-to-day work and actually what's causing them problems often is the unpredictability of the work and often they have to see these patients anyway but they have but they're seeing them you know in in the accident and emergency room for example where they have to go to and at a time that they are not expecting those patients and actually what synapses has allowed them to do by connecting them with the people who are sending them these patients They've allowed them, one, to understand the problems even before they arrive, and they're able to organize their work. So by deferring some patients who don't need to be seen right now, they can change unscheduled work, so emergency work, into scheduled work. And that's very valuable to them. 
But before we get to that, today's discussion. You will hear an insight into how is paperwork complicating coordination and management of patient care and how a task management tool designed specially for healthcare by a GI pediatric specialist Michael Doctor is solving this issue. Until recently, Michael was one of the driving forces of digital health innovation at Boston's Children's Hospital. As you will hear, he is still partially working as a doctor, but spends most of his time as the CEO of Doc Health, a simple HIPAA-compliant task management and collaboration platform designed for healthcare. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be automatically notified about the mentioned upcoming episodes when they will be published. There's a list of links to all the solutions presented in this series in the show notes. And to get more info about the series, go to the summary blog post on our website, www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Now, to the discussion with Michael Doctor. Michael, hi. Uh, All set? All set, thank you. Okay, so Michael, first just a random question for warm-up. Did you always know that you want to be a doctor given your last name? I had uh, very little choice in the matter. No, uh, there's actually a, there's a video that my parents recently uncovered uh, from me when I was around four years old saying that I wanted to be a doctor. So I have video confirmation of, uh, of this long-term life desire. So yeah, the name probably helped. It was... Uh, a little bit of a setup, but uh, yeah, because th- there's this whole theory about nominative determinism, where the name is supposed to determine what our profession is going to be. So, for example, some examples for medicine are that there's a Dr. Gary Alter, who's a plastic surgeon. Or Dr. Russell Brain was an eminent British neurologist, and we could go on with examples. So that's why, you know, when I saw your last name, I thought, hmm, well, that's an interesting combination. So there's something to that, I firmly believe. Uh, certainly made for a very easy, uh, you know, um, essay for my medical school applications. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's something to it for sure. You are a GI doctor. Can you perhaps explain why did you choose that specialty? Yeah, without uh, telling you the whole long story, which should take up the bulk of this episode. Um, yeah, so I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist. Um, yeah, the short version is that um, my sister got sick when I was around six or seven years old um, with a GI condition that they thought was Crohn's disease at the time. Um, and uh, she was very sick. She was in the hospital. And this um, uh, prominent and uh, magical doctor came in from New York City um, as a consultant uh, to, you know, uh, to my sister's case and ultimately diagnosed her with uh, something called C. difficile, which is a type of mm-hmm. uh, intestinal infection. Um, and you know, they started her on an antibiotic and she got better. And uh, she followed with this gastroenterologist and I used to go to the visits with them as a little kid and, and never really at the time appreciated that this guy was like my hero. Um, and I, you know, basically followed in his footsteps. I followed him and ended up doing rotations with him throughout college and medical school. And, um, again, kind of without even realizing it very much wanted to follow in his footsteps. And so that was the, that was the short version of that story. 
So just to stick with the gastroenterology for another second, I have another very random question. Anyone who's gone through colonoscopy uh, without sedation knows that for some reason it's, uh, it can be a very different experience based on w- how much experience does a doctor have with the procedure. So why is that? Why are the level, levels of pain in colonoscopy so different based on the skills of a physician? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess two things. One is in pediatrics, we don't do that for a reason because we want people to remain comfortable. Uh, it makes it a much more difficult procedure for the endoscopist, for the proceduralist, when the patients are awake and you know feeling everything and, and resisting movement and stuff. So um, in general, I would say we, we try to avoid that. Having said that, it's like anything. Um, you know, you get better with time. Um, you know, why are drivers that just, um, you know, are, are getting behind the wheel for the first time more likely to crash or more likely to, you know, be a poor driver versus, you know, someone who's an expert driver. So I think, you know, it's a perhaps a poor analogy, but for sure, um, your comfort with the, you know, with the device and, you know, patient's tolerance to discomfort and navigating and moving, um, it gets better over time. So for sure, you know, I'm someone that's been doing uh, endoscopies and colonoscopies for, you know, a dozen years. I'm a lot better now than I was when I first started. Are you still working in the clinical practice because you have your own company? Yeah, so I'm still doing clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, how, how much? Is it just like on a weekly basis? I do, I do it a couple times a month, which is uh, enough to give me the time I need to dedicate to my startup, but also uh, still taking care of my patients. One of the interesting projects that you were involved in before starting Doc Health, uh, I mean, you're, you were involved in a bunch of projects, which perhaps you can mention a little bit later, but one of them was a VR solution. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. So basically, Voyager was a solution to help patients better understand what happened during the procedure. So can you take us from there? Our jobs as physicians, I would say, just to kind of crystallize the concept, uh, is to help translate complicated information uh, in a digestible way that people can understand and do something with. And uh, that's particularly challenging in, in pediatrics because you have to not only educate the parents and potentially the grandparents, but also the kid. Uh, and the kid could be very young or you know, teenager or even a young adult. Um, uh, but you know, in essence, it's really how do you best educate and engage the patient so that they have the you know, wherewithal to take what they've learned and hopefully manage their potentially chronic disease. So my experience was in particularly, I deal with mostly uh, children with inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's and colitis. And we do lots of procedures to diagnose that condition, you know, and and endoscopy or colonoscopy is ultimately how you make the diagnosis. Um, And, uh, you know, the way that we would educate and inform patients and their families about the findings of a a colonoscopy are literally printing out a two-page PDF of the procedure with these little one-inch thumbnail images of the procedure, you know, so they could have been in an hour-long procedure and ultimately they get this, like, medical document to take home with these tiny little images and we say here you have Crohn's disease that was a very underwhelming experience for me as a provider um, and I feel like the patients really didn't learn um, and understand uh, to the degree that they could or should and so I had come across um, and was just very much involved with technology and innovation at Boston Children's Hospital and and really um, came across a group that was working on virtual reality 
um, uh, education material for doctors uh, to educate them on how certain drugs worked. So they had created a virtual reality tool for um, for a pharmaceutical company to educate doctors on how a certain biologic worked. But they took the provider in this case uh, in a, you know through a journey through the colon um, in virtual reality. It was super engaging, and I. I learned a lot, but I also, it was just totally enamored with the technology and completely just, you know, immersed in the experience. And I thought, let's, we need to use this sort of thing for um, educating patients as well. And so uh, that was with a company called Click Health out of Toronto. Um, and over the subsequent couple of years, we actually uh, together developed a solution that basically allowed a provider like myself to create a customized version of what I saw. Uh, in a patient's colonoscopy, create a customized version for the patient so that we could basically recreate their colonoscopy in virtual reality so that we can then show a patient and their family their procedure and the specific findings that indicate that this is Crohn's or colitis or some other condition, um, but do it in real time um, and show them in a way that's engaging and not gross or um, you know something that a child may not want to look at, but super engaging and immersive. Uh, and we did a clinical study and showed that it was, uh, you know, provided better patient satisfaction and better educational value and all the things that you would assume an engaging virtual reality tool might do. So, yeah, I was actually wondering what what is the actual output of that kind of an experience? Obviously, the patient understands things better, but... Uh, how does potentially the care that follows improve? Because in the research paper that you wrote about this, uh, there's some statistics saying that research shows that 40 to 60% of patients can't correctly report what their physician uh, expected uh, in, let's say, 10 to, 10 to 80 minutes after they were provided with information. And other research also demonstrated that over 60% of patients interviewed immediately Immediately after visiting their doctor, misunderstood the directions regarding prescribed medicine. Unfortunately, we haven't done the sort of long-term impact of um, of educating and engaging, particularly pediatric patients, uh, about their disease. But the um, the assumption, a lot of this is based on you know um, what they call Lay's principle, which is that you know better understanding, better educational value leads to ultimately better patient outcomes. And the, the assumption baked in there is that if people are more engaged, they better understand their condition, they're more likely to adhere to their therapies, and therefore uh, their their care may be better. And so, you know, um, we need to do a longer term study to truly see, you know, are there better patient outcomes? But um, for sure, the educational value uh, was demonstrated, the patient satisfaction values were uh, clearly demonstrated. So, um, it just is, it makes intuitive sense that a, a more engaging uh, and sort of educationally valuable tool is going to ultimately provide um, a better experience for patients, particularly pediatric. And, and the hope is that there's long-term benefit there. Perhaps uh, the fact that you actually understand what happened during the procedure can also increase the trust that you have in your doctor because, you know, um, I've been to colonoscopies and then a doctor there says, yeah, everything's fine. And then you get the discharge letter or just, you know, the, the whole medical record and there's things written in, in the language that you don't understand and it doesn't sound as great as the doctor said it was. <laughs> 
Exactly. It's that medical jargon. That's the document that we hand patients right now. Um, and so our belief is that a more patient-centric um, sort of uh, digestible and informative um, tool. This is, you know, we, we've made it very, um, not only customizable on the provider end, so we can add features that we saw to make it um, personalized, but we also, you know, uh, allow patients to take it home. Uh, it's an app that they can download um, so they can take it home, they can share it with their families, and they can show them, um, you know, what, they, what they've learned and what they've experienced. And, you have quite a long history of uh, passionate engagement in digital health. So uh, when you began working as a medical doctor at Boston's Children's Hospital, uh, you became the director of clinical mobile solutions in 2013. You also founded the faculty of Boston Children's Hospital's Clinical Informatics Fellowship, which aims at exposing trainees to clinical mobile solutions, and um, you did a lot in innovating in healthcare IT, became the clinical director to the Innovation and Digital Health Accelerator. So can you take us through the journey of how the culture around technology was changing, how the culture, cultural shift happened in uh, parallel with the technological development? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I guess for, for any prospective physician who wants to be either entrepreneurial or technical, um, you know, I took a, an interesting kind of relatively circuitous route. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the overall message is to be, um, be curious and, and follow um, what you're passionate about. And for me, you know, I was funny enough, I was in the lab um, during my gastroenterology fellowship and I found myself really being enamored with the, you know, this new device called the iPhone and this new concept called the app store for a couple hundred or even a couple thousand dollars, you could create an app and put it on the app store and, and you know, you might get lucky. Um, and so I started doing that with some friends and became really um, enamored with the, um, the concept of user experience design. And um, that quickly just uh, opened my eyes to the concept that you know every all these physicians are carrying around their phones and all the others clinicians nurses and PAs and nurse practitioners and, and no one's really using them for clinical stuff and everyone's got their email on it and they're calling their parents or they're texting people but how do we take um, these wonderfully powerful tools in our pocket and actually start using them for clinical care and so um, my first job and my sort of first project was bringing in secure messaging to Boston Children's. And so at the time, there was no one thinking about mobile strategy. And I was aggressive enough to continue to go to meetings and ask the right people. And, and they finally said, Michael, looks like you're excited about this stuff. You should, you should do this. Um, and they gave me the resources necessary to do that. And I kind of grew into these roles. So the one of the founding faculty members of our clinical informatics fellowship. Um, I wouldn't take any credit for um, the program itself, which is wonderful that my colleagues started. And I was just one of the players in that, but uh, kind of long winded way of saying, you can do what you're passionate about. If you're at a place like, you know, Boston children's, which is just incredibly resourced. And despite the fact that it's an amazing place, there wasn't anyone focused on the things that I was interested and passionate about. And they gave me the, the agency and the resources to, to do that. 
You began working in the clinical practice right around the time when Hitech Act was passed, so that was a part of the stimulus package to drive EHR adoption in the US. So how do you remember um, the consequences of that act and what followed? So the rapid adoption of electronic healthcare records, were they already in place when you started working or did you do a lot of things all, all on paper and just started implementing EHRs? I did my residency at uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, which was um, on Cerner in 2008 when I started there. And I uh, moved to Boston Children's in uh, 2008, and they were also on Cerner. Um, so they they were well ahead of the pack, I guess, as far as being uh, academic institutions already on the electronic health record. Certainly the stimulus uh, led to a greater adoption and sort of deeper dives into um trying to make things uh, more electronic across the across the board across the enterprise um, uh, and provided some stimulus to to allow you know the resources to to make it all better faster uh, more deeply um, integrated but you know the truth of the matter is that that my experience has always been you know in enterprises with um, electronic health record already in place when I was in medical school there you know there was really we were very much still on paper so so uh, do, do you have pleasant memories on EHRs? You know, I think that the EHRs get a lot, they get a bad rap um, for good reason. Um, you know, they're terribly designed systems. They, um, in my own short career, I've certainly spent a lot of, um, a lot more time in the electronic health record than I care to. Um, and frankly, a lot of what we're working on with Doc Health is in, response to like the gaps that the electronic health record did not fill and the challenges that remain in clinical practice, you know, all those sort of task management stuff that comes as part of good clinical care is not something that the EMRs handle. Um, so there are a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the grief and the burnout that you hear uh, with clinicians, uh, particularly physicians right now, um, you know, all the burnout stuff is all centered on the electronic health record. And that's true to a degree, but it's, I think in, in my mind, it's really much more um, the administrative burden that is um, just not accounted for um, in all the sort of clinical practice. There's all the things that need to happen um, in a, in a highly reliable fashion that don't happen and are not documented in electronic health record or not a billing thing or not a, you know, a, a clinical note, but, you know, get all these things done for this patient to make sure that the things I wanted to happen actually happen. So to make that more uh, illustrative, can you take us through the whole process of admission in the hospital? So how many papers need to be filled out? How many bureaucratic tasks need to happen before somebody gets to the world? I'll mention that one briefly, and then I'll maybe go into something that might be yeah, even more common, which is just a, you know, your average sort of ambulatory or outpatient clinic visit. But you know, to briefly mention on the inpatient side, so you know, a hospital admission, assuming a patient comes from that hospital's emergency room and then gets admitted to the hospital, you know, uh, there's that whole transition of care where everyone has to sign out and, and basically inform the other team who's taking over, you know, all the things that have been done need to be done. And so there's plenty of balls that can drop in that sort of scenario. Um, but then all the orders, you know, the admission orders need to be placed, you know, literally dozens of boxes to check and forms to fill out. Um, at least it is, you know, largely electronic on the provider side. Um, but it, it is an endless series of boxes to check and 
you know, documents to fill out. Uh, and it's painful. And I think, you know, more than likely it leads to um, some challenges in ensuring that all those things get checked off. I'm um, certainly, I take care of patients on the inpatient side of my uh, experience and the bulk of my time and certainly the bulk of our focus at Doc Health is really on the ambulatory clinics. Um, so if I see a patient in my GI clinic, I may, you know, uh, certainly I'll spend you know, a half hour with them or an hour with them. I'll um, then have to document that experience uh, in a clinical notes. And I may place orders for a prescription or an x-ray or a lab, but there are many things that have to happen in addition. Um, that don't get well documented, that don't get, um, you know, are just simply there's no space for that sort of concept in the electronic health record. So, for example, you know, a patient will call the day after their visit and say, hey, you know, I forgot to ask you, you know, Jimmy needs a note for school um, or Jimmy uh, has, a, you know, a, um, a learning disability and they have a 504 plan, which is a special educational plan. Um, can you fill out this form? And that, that, you know, like happy to do that, but that doesn't really fit into any, you know, well-defined space um, in the electronic health record. And so that becomes a to-do um, and that could end up on a post-it note um, somewhere on my desk or in an email or even in the electronic health record, um, like email inbox. But how do you track that process? How do you delegate that? Um, and that's a simple, you know, one-off to-do. Um, there are much more complicated processes. So for example, that same patient needs to start a complex um, medication regimen that may require coordination of um, getting a patient to an infusion center and making sure all the insurance stuff is tackled. Um, that requires this delicate dance between you know myself, my administrative folks, the insurance companies, um, the infusion center and the family and the patient. Um, and, and how do we sort of coordinate that magic that the, you know, all the sort of tasks that go back and forth and how do we make sure that all the steps are taken uh, appropriately? How do we see where that process is in flight? And so that's, you know, what we've created with Doc Health is really just a, a platform that allows teams to work together um, on in a unified, you know, in a unified way. So that, that workflow, the back and forth phone calls and the back and forth tasks and uh, all that can be done in a, in a highly regimented and highly sort of reliable way, but also in a way that can be have the accountability necessary and the visibility uh, by the team to see where it is, to see where it is. So where is Doc Health used so far and how did you design the solution? How long did it take you to come to the stage where you are today? Uh, and, you know, because the one big issue when it comes to apps and all the IT systems, which uh, uh, hospitals literally can have hundreds of systems um, based on specialty. And the question is always, how are you going to convince the users to use these things? How are you going to create the adoption needed for these things to have the impact that they can have? The kind of quick founding story of Doc is that I... I uh, met my co-founder who's a user experience designer. We decided to work together to you know, solve a big problem in healthcare. Um, and so we you know, thought big at first and thought, no, let's redesign the electronic health record, which was um, a gargantuan task. And we very quickly realized that that was silly. Um, and, and really when we looked at the pain points and the problems that, that clinicians and their teams were having, it kept on coming back to um, just getting everyone on the same page to, to coordinate and collaborate and manage the tasks um, 
seemed challenging. And uh, both she and I benefited from having the experience of seeing what other industries have um, been transformed by tools like Wonderlist and Jira and Asana and these sort of task management, project management tools that have you know, allowed teams to kind of get on the same page and collaborate and work together. We wanted to take the best of those products and that concept and build it out specifically for healthcare. Um, we uh, were lucky enough to get a grant to build out um, our MVP, our, our basic product. And over the course of you know, two years, we built out the product. We tested it at Boston Children's and turned out that people outside of Boston Children's Hospital wanted it too. That ultimately led to us actually spinning out the company from Boston Children's Hospital and me leaving my full-time job at Boston Children's um, to be CEO of uh, Doc Health. So, What ties does Doc Health still have with Boston Children's Hospital? So is it, uh, I mean, do, do they act as an investor that has a significant share in the company? So, you know, just for to understand. Yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'll speak in, I guess, generic terms, but, you know, as a company that was founded at Boston Children's Hospital and ultimately spun out, um, they have an equity stake in the company. So just to go back to the question that I mentioned before, how did you manage to get teams on board to use Doc Health and why was it necessary to have a new app? Why couldn't you simply use the already existing tools that you mentioned? So like Jira or uh, Asana or others? I'll answer the second one first because that's easy. So, you know, the, the existing tools, um, you know, for many reasons were not built for healthcare. First and foremost, um, the essential, you know, for those not in the U.S., um, you know, the essential element in any sort of healthcare software is that it can um, safely manage uh, protected health information, so PHI. Um, so HIPAA compliance or um, you know, the ability to kind of securely manage the data um, of uh, protected health data from patients is essential, and none of the platforms um, that I've mentioned handle that. And so fundamentally at our core, we're built to be a secure platform um, for healthcare. Beyond that, you know, the the other platforms I mentioned are, are really built for, you know, um, non-healthcare industries. So we, you know, we provide patient context in in the in a task. So when you create the to-do, you can add a patient context to that task. Um, and there are just a ton of workflows and challenges in healthcare that are unique that we're trying to, you know, uh, account for and build for. Um, as far as convincing users to use it, that's, um, that is the million dollar question or the billion dollar question. Um, you know, it's challenging, um, frankly, because we are a novel concept in healthcare. Um, if you polled a bunch of, uh, American physicians on, um, whether or not they've heard of Asana or whether they've heard of Trello, um, I'm venturing to guess that a overwhelming majority of them have never even heard of these billion-dollar companies um, that do product management for other industries. So we're, we're a relatively novel concept in healthcare, um, task management or project management. Um, and so not only do we have to educate folks on what we are and why we're valuable, um, but then we have to deal with the workflow challenges of how do we integrate with their existing systems and their existing workflows because physicians, more than anyone, are very slow to adopt and very slow to move and change. And so it is an ongoing challenge for us. And we're, you know, just hitting the market and trying to figure all that out. Um, but to which extent do you actually need to integrate 
with the existing systems? Overwhelmingly, any um, any healthcare software, the sort of obvious question is, it, does it integrate with the electronic health record? Because that's where physicians and their teams spend most of their time. Um, our supposition um, and our sort of uh, approach is unique in that we don't require electronic health record integration to, uh, to have value. And I think that's part of what makes us really nimble and allows us to operate at you know, much lower cost um, to the providers, but also, you know, we can de be deployed in a practice in five minutes, um, which you cannot say about almost any other uh, healthcare software. And so what we do is just um, allow providers and their teams to create a task and add patient context. Uh, you know, they can create a patient profile in Doc Health, you know, in under 10 seconds. Uh, or if they're inclined, we can simply upload their patient um, demographic table to Doc Health um, so that they've got all the patients they need when they want to create patient context. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the workflows that we're replacing are things that are happening over email or on post-it notes. These are things that are not integrated with EMR right now. Um, and so for us, it's an easier sort of leap to, to not have an integrated solution. We're happy to do the integration uh, where appropriate, um, but obviously that takes time and costs more than just um, $20 per user per month, which is what we're charging right now. Um, I still want to learn a little bit more about your experiences with healthcare IT and technologies in the hospital. Uh, the more that I think and the more entrepreneurs that I'm meeting, the more I see that a lot of doctors are actually addressing management issues, you know, with all these digital solutions. So I'm, perhaps just a comment that you can add there in terms of how are technological solutions complicating the whole workflows in the hospital and um, or are simply the solutions that are getting in healthcare so badly or so poorly designed that you need uh, to fill so many gaps that are created with these systems? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a, I guess, a double-edged sword. I think the challenge is that Many physicians like myself went into medicine to take care of patients. And the reality is that we end up spending most of our time doing administrative stuff. Um, yeah, because whether it's um, documenting in the electronic health record or it's, you know, doing our billing and compliance stuff in the EHR, or it's, you know, spending a couple hours a week fighting with insurance companies about prior authorizations and doing peer to peers. You know, our job as physicians has become increasingly administrative in nature. And if you look at there's a beautiful chart that you can find somewhere um, looking at the number of physicians versus the number of healthcare administrators. And it's like an exponential curve with the number of healthcare administrators, but the number of physicians stays about the same. Um, so the administrative burden of healthcare continues to grow. And that's, again, why I think you're seeing all this sort of um, burnout reach you reach uh, you know, a fever pitch is that it's just, um, it's becoming um, overwhelming to the system, particularly the providers who really went into medicine to take care of patients, to do that direct face-to-face -face care uh, and all the sort of challenges and, and time spent um, doing this stuff that really wasn't what they went into medicine for. You know, something like uh, physicians spend an average of two hours doing administrative work for every hour they spend with patients. Um, that's, you know, that is at the, at a minimum, the reverse of what it should be. But frankly, I think it's still far off.
I remember so we're all trying to build systems to kind of counteract that, to try and build um, processes and automation where um, we can remove some of that burden and get back to what's important, which is taking care of patients. I remember that graph uh, of the um, uh, rising number of administrative staff. So perhaps the question here, given how much administrative uh, work doctors still do, what exactly is the relationship between doctors and administrative staff in the hospital? How does that look like? Is it that, I don't know, you have 10 tasks and now you have to reach out to 10 new administrative people that are in charge of 10 different things? So in the end, the record is created to the best possible extent. Yeah, it, it's a tough question because it's different in every environment, right? I, I came from a large academic clinical center that we have, you know, 50 gastroenterologists and probably 200 administrative folks helping those gastroenterologists. Um, you know, a small practice is going to be a very different setup. But, you know, I think um, for speaking for myself, we... You know, I had a, a core team that I worked with. So even though we had a huge operation, you know, I have a nurse that I work with, a nurse practitioner I work with, an administrative uh, assistant, and scheduling folks. That's a team of folks. And so that's really the core group that I work with. And so getting on the same page with them is relatively easy. Um, you know, the, a lot of the administrative, sorry, administrative burden that I'm referring to is not only that internal team, but also the insurance company over here and there's you know eight different insurance companies that we may be dealing with and the pharmacy here and the infusion company here and you know there's just so many um balls up in the air and so many different players in the ecosystem that that's where this sort of administrative you know thing just continues to exponentially grow um and the number of barriers that get put up to reduce costs or attempt to reduce costs ultimately just make more work for the physicians and their team um, and so that's where I think the frustration is. And that's why, you know, there are so many startups and, and established companies trying to reduce, you know, the time of documentation and the billing that physicians do and the, you know, voice enabled this and the, um, you know, for us, it's kind of helping, helping the teams get coordinated on all the tasks that need to occur and, and preventing those drop balls and errors, um, and ultimately making people more efficient. But there's, um, you know, each group is different, um, and, and that's part of the challenge. Uh, we are in very unprecedented times at the moment with the COVID-19 crisis, where the way that the healthcare system is organized is more crucial than ever. So from that perspective, do you see any specific trends uh, also with the use of your app and how it aids uh, management of healthcare in the current time. It is truly a, a fascinating and, and uh, frankly, scary time. Um, I think that there are um, some real opportunities to um, rebuild now that, you know, the, the house is burning, so to speak. I think that there's opportunity for healthcare to look, you know, look at the inefficiencies and the challenges that we've erected. Um, and and try to remove some of those barriers and, and build thoughtfully with interoperability and patient care in mind. Um, so, you know, for us at DocHealth, you know, just a, a brief comment on the, our COVID response. So, you know, we built a platform that helps teams get on the same page and put structure where it doesn't exist. And so um, very early on in this process, you know, early March, we, we put out... Um, 
a, a call that basically said, if anyone who is dealing with COVID um, as a healthcare provider needs a system to help them get organized, you know, Doc Health is free to use, and that remains true. We also took all the CDC guidelines um, that are pages upon pages of really valuable material about how to get prepared as a hospital, as a, as a practice, how to deal with incoming patients, et cetera, and turn those pages of you know, text into actionable to-do lists. So actionable team task lists that we've created from the CDC guidelines into um, you know, various preparedness guidelines and checklists. So that is also, again, available uh, for free at dochealth.com. Um, our, our beyond that, you know, we see just at a high level that there are a couple of really fascinating things going on. One is that telemedicine has exploded, as one might expect, and that's here to stay. And so the, the sort of paradigm or the sort of models of care are going to change. There's going to be a, a lot more remote patient monitoring. There's going to be a lot more care at a distance. There's going to be a lot more telemedicine. Uh, and, and with that comes uh, teams that are distributed. So it used to be that in a small practice, you know, the doctor and the nurse and the nurse practitioner and the admin all were in the same office, all working together. And when you needed something done, you'd walk to the front desk and say, hey, would you mind doing this thing? Now these teams are working from home and they're distributed, so that's challenging and adding to the stress and strain. Um, and in addition, unfortunately, patient uh, you know providers and their teams have um, have lost their jobs, right? I mean, the the volumes of um, of patient uh, that that folks are seeing now are down fifty plus percent. You know, ophthalmologists on average, I think, are seeing like seventy percent less volume than they were seeing before. So, the, understandably, their administrative folks are being fired or furloughed or laid off, um, and so now suddenly. Physicians and their teams are now working with smaller staff, doing a lot of the same work, if not new work, that they had to do before. How do we translate that into getting that stuff done reliably? In the past, you know, there may have been one person at the front desk that knew this magical workflow and made it happen. Now, suddenly, that person isn't there. They're sick or they're furloughed or they're unfortunately lost their job. How do we manage the process that that person used to do? Uh, in a way that um, we can reliably check the box and make sure that the things that the patient needed to get good care, how do we ensure that those things still happen? So I think that COVID has surfaced some real pain points in healthcare, and I think we're well positioned to help solve some of that. Some people do say that, uh, yeah, the healthcare uh, system changed more in 20 days than it did in the last 20 years because of th what happened Yeah. No, I mean, just as an example, I, I have been practicing telemedicine for, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, I think as an institution, we would um, do on average 20 uh, virtual visits or 20, you know, telemedicine visits per day. Um, in the matter of a week in, in March, we went from 20 to over 1,500 as a hospital in a day, in, in a week. So the volume and continues to grow. So, you know, telemedicine as an example is just something that will, will forever transform healthcare. And you know, I've firmly believed in it for a very long time. Uh, now it's nice to see that patients are accepting of it. Insurance companies are accepting of it. I think the pendulum will swing back a little bit. Um, right now it's a, it's a total, you know, what the wild west and a free for all. And there are many platforms and there, you know, the licensure stuff is, you know, uh, been opened up just to, to help in the response. But I think that, um, 
that will swing back a little bit, but overall telemedicine will be here to stay and remote care and remote patient monitoring will continue to grow. Uh, it's clear why uh, telemedicine is so welcomed by patients. You know, for one thing, you don't have to drive maybe an hour or more to the doctor's office and to the waiting room before seeing a doctor. But perhaps just uh, from your doctor's perspective, um, how does that change your stress levels in providing medicine if you do telemedical visits all day? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I find it to be enormously rewarding. I, it, it's, it's for me, again, I've been practicing it for a while, so I have the perspective. Um, I find it to be far more efficient. Um, and so seeing patients um, when they don't have to be, you know, uh, they don't have to, as you said, drive and park and sit in the waiting room and then get, uh, you know, uh, get weighed and measured and wait for them to get put into a room after it's clean, like that process, you're always waiting for patients uh, to be put into a room. And um, I could see probably, I don't want to say twice as many patients, but I can see patients far more efficiently. Um, so that leads to you know, a better experience for me as a provider. Um, I also get to see, particularly in pediatrics, I get to see children in their native environment. I get to see them comfortable on the couch at home. They're playing with their pets. They're relaxed. You know, it's just a different experience for them as opposed to being in the cold, sterile environment of a hospital, even if it's a beautifully designed children's hospital. Um, you know, and then now the you know, kids aren't missing school. Again, this, you know, in a non-COVID environment, that would not be an issue. Uh, parents aren't missing work. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's just a much overall better experience. It's not for everything in every condition. And just to be clear, I mean, I'm someone that deals with many patients with uh, chronic conditions like Crohn's and colitis. These are, um, you know, lifelong conditions that um, uh, I, we have to track closely. And so I'm seeing established patients um, for their follow-up. And in general, these are just, you know, you're, you're checking on them, uh, on their symptoms, on their on their life and how they're coping on their, you know, perhaps response to therapy or um, side effects to medications. And so these are things that can easily be conducted over telemedicine. And there's very little lost in that regard. Um, what about the administrative burden? Is that decreased in any way if you do telemedical visits? I think no. it's more efficient, honestly. And so I think that uh, the, the administrative burden doesn't go away, but because it's a more efficient experience, um, you can, you know, uh, leave a, leave a, a, a virtual visit and tackle all the sort of like, you know, to do's the tasks, um, that come as part of that in a relatively seamless workflow. because you're still at the computer doing, uh, your thing. And so that's why I have my doc health window open and I've got my virtual visit thing set up. And as soon as the visit's over, I can put all the to do's that my team may need to tackle, um, right there in a seamless workflow. Whereas, You know, in the clinic, there's just more moving around different rooms and you go to a work room and then you go to the clinic room and it's a little bit more fractionated so or uh, fractured. So uh, I, I find it easier just to kind of sit at my desk and do my do my administrative clinical stuff altogether. altogether. Uh, telemedicine was a very obvious, um, how should I say, star when the COVID crisis began, um, the use went up for hundreds of percentages and um, everybody, or there was a general perception that um, 
healthcare is never going to be the same even after the pandemic ends uh, because uh, new habits are going to be uh, formed and if insurance companies don't pull back the support for telemedicine which was also one of the main drivers for the use of telemedicine now because Medicare um, decided to cover it on a broader scale Um, so that was just one big change that happened now do you see or is it already possible to predict any other um, side effects of the crisis uh, on the way that healthcare is going to be delivered even after the crisis? Do you already see any new ideas sparking? No, I mean, again, I think telemedicine for sure uh, is here to stay. I think, um, you know, right now it's, as I mentioned, like the Wild West, there's just you know dozens, if not hundreds of platforms and everyone's kind of figuring out what works best for them. Um, I think that remote patient monitoring is a thing that has also been relatively in the shadows. I mean, as a, someone who follows technology and innovation closely, you know, I've been fascinated by all these sorts of remote patient monitoring tools and, and all that. Um, that is a, still in its infancy, but I think that, again, as um, you know, we're directing care more to hospitals at home and trying to keep patients out of the hospital and, and trying to do more virtual care. That to me is going to be the next area of growth. Um, you know, I think that um, unfortunately, like large physical spaces are really going to be um, less valuable um, than they were in the past. Um, so but whether it's office buildings or hospitals, hopefully um, less and less people are going to be seeking their care there. And so I think, you know, creating a more robust um, clinical experience for for patients at home, either for you know, a typical ambulatory uh, well patient visit uh, to sick care, you know, I think it's going to be more um, monitoring tools, more sort of point of care testing, you know, like rapid strep testing that can be done from home and, you know, all these sorts of tools that I think are going to, we're going to see them expand over time. You described very vividly how healthcare uh, as an industry is changing because of the layoffs, because some things can't be done at the moment, which also means that um, the final toll of the Uh, COVID crisis is going to be much bigger than just the COVID patients, but also the patients that are supposed to get care or checkups and are not getting them now. So in oncology, doctors fears that there's going to be more metastatic cancer um, and just uh, worse outcomes because people don't get um, to their healthcare providers. You, you made me think when you said that, you know, the systems are breaking up now. And so those people that lost their jobs perhaps are not going to go back in the same job. So how much problems do you see that in, in this sense that, you know, we are literally going to have to rebuild the system from the ground up to a certain extent? This is just the beginning, right? I think um, for, for folks in the know, Um, I think we're in the first or second inning of a nine inning baseball game here. Um, I think, uh, you know, the economic impact is going to be tremendous and we're just beginning to see that, um, you know, literally tens of millions of people are losing their jobs across all industries. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we need to find the light. And I think that um, healthcare is such a huge part of our, um, you know, of our, expenditures and and frankly now i think that um 
that has even risen, um, you know, where people now truly appreciate the value of healthcare in this, in this country. And so to me, I think it's a real opportunity to rebuild in many ways. Um, I think that, you know, we're going to have to learn to be more efficient. We're going to have to learn to be, um, you know, I think I heard a stat just the other day that some, somewhere around 18% of providers, uh, physicians are going to retire, um, you know, simply based on this COVID experience, you know, again, many, um, many providers are literally seeing fractions of their, their volumes, um, which is not sustainable for them or their, or their patients or their, um, you know, or their, the folks in their practice that help manage it. So, um, it's, it's scary. We're going to lose potentially 20% of our, you know, providers, which is already stretched quite thin. So how do we make them more efficient? How do we, um, reduce the administrative burden of those folks that they can practice to the best of their abilities to take care of as many patients uh, in a high quality fashion without being bogged down by the paperwork and the nonsense. So I'm hopeful um, as an internal optimist that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel and that there will be a better healthcare system driven by um, the right sort of um, metrics over time. Um, but th that's going to take some time as well. Uh, but I, I think, you know, there is reason to be hopeful for the future. And the number one thing to do is to organize well with tools like yours, right? <laughs> I would argue everything is a task, right? And so I think that, you know, we're, we're well positioned to be helpful in this new, uh, in this new world. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make it easier for providers to take good care of their patients. And so, how do we do that in a structured manner? Um, how do we make teams work efficiently together? You know, we're all in, the, we're all in this together. That's what I hear in many, from many different perspectives. And I think that's very true. Uh, we often operate in silos in healthcare. And so how do we, you know, knock those silos down and work together and get on the same page? And that's not just internal teams, but that's, you know, how does the healthcare system work better together to take patient care across the many sort of, um, stakeholders in, in the ecosystem. So, you know, could we be the platform that helps, um, you know, all those sort of disparate players work together for better patient care? That's our hope. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhelp.com. And of course, stay tuned.